Good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. My name is Sean Bloor and I'm the host for this evening. Um, tonight, I'm going to be joined by David Miller and Tony Greenstein. And we're going to be talking about the ongoing situation in Ukraine and the historical consequences that have led to this horrific conflict. War doesn't just happen overnight. War is ugly, it's chaotic and it's bloody. Millions of innocent people get caught up in that war and it's not their fault. However, war isn't just about the fighting and the killing. It's about controlling the narrative on the world stage, which we talked to Rod Driver about last week. It's not for us to take sides in war. This isn't a game of whose team you're on. And tonight we'd like to address some of the straw man arguments that we're seeing across social media. Um, hi, David. Are you there? Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Hi, David. Um, welcome back to Resist TV. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to place the current situation we're in by telling us how we got here in the first place. That's a big question. So I suppose there's two, two answers to that question that I would want to give you. One is the big, big answer, which is um, US imperialism and NATO expansion, which I think people on the left have rehearsed reasonably well, although of course there seems to be a bit of a, a, a dispute about this on, on some parts of the left, uh, so some surprising parts of the left perhaps. But of course, this comes about because of uh, NATO's obsession with expanding towards the Russian border. They said not an inch and they've gone very many miles towards the Russian border, including, of course, the three Baltic states, which are all along the Russian border, and now attempting to bring Ukraine into to NATO, uh, an effort they've been engaged in since, well, since about 2005, 2006, if you look back at the attempts to set up um, NATO, pro-NATO clubs uh, in, uh, in the Ukraine. So that's the big picture and some small bits within that of course are the color revolutions uh, which swept um, eastern europe after the fall of the soviet union of course in 2004 there was the orange revolution in ukraine which uh, where they pursued the kinds of pro-eu pro-nato policies that we, we are now seeing the result of and then more obviously and more catastrophically the coup against the elected government, let's emphasize this, the elected government uh, of Yanukovych. Uh, and the coup was uh, something which happened, as everybody knows, I think, don't they, um, which happened as a result of the mobilization of the far right, the right sect of the Azov battalions, the lot, the whole, well, the C-14, all of them, all these people, right, C-4, sorry. Uh, and, um, but it, it wasn't just the mobilization of the far right which caused the coup in, in Euromaidan in 2014. It was uh, a, a Western, I'm using the word advisedly here, a Western plot. So we know this from the transcripts and the evidence which is, have come out in the trials of those accused of the shootings, the killings of those protesters, 50 odd, maybe uh, more than that protesters uh, in Euromaidan, including lots of cops who were killed. They killed the cops and they killed also the protesters, the anti-government protesters. And that this was done as a provocation uh, to try and get rid of the, the, the president. And they, they succeeded. The president left the, the next day. They tried to assassinate the president on his way out. Uh, they, they didn't manage that because his car was empty and he'd gone a different way. Uh, and the people who were involved in this plot, uh, you'll be unsurprised to learn, were foreign mercenaries 
who were allegedly, according to reports from the trials, under the command or the uh, the inference of uh, a senior special forces uh, U.S. Um, uh, uh, military officer. Now, this is something which not not even the revolutionary left is talking about as much as they should. This is a, a coup planned by the by by the U.S. Uh, and I mean, they said uh, and these statements are publicly available. You know, we will not get rid of them until we get 100 people dead. They said that to the far right, and the far right said, okay, well, we'll kill 100 people then. And, and they, they tried, didn't quite get there, I think, in, the, in that particular day. And so that, that's, the, that's, that's what happened. They, they got rid of the government. They brought in Zelensky, this guy who's created, who is, a, of course, as everyone knows, a, a comedian, who starred in this program called Servant of the People, sponsored by um, the owner of the channel and his great uh, mentor, uh, Igor Kolomoisky the Zionist uh, Ukrainian oligarch who has citizenship in uh, Cyprus, the Ukraine uh, and Israel, which of course, as lots of people will know, is illegal, but nevertheless, he has that. And, and then when that program was successful, they created a political party called Servant of the People. And, he, and, he, and then they ran that in the elections. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a fictional narrative. And, uh, and there we are. Uh, that, that's what's come to pass. We now have Zelensky as the, as the, uh, the president. And so that's the the big picture. Is that it, this is a, a provocation by the West? Uh, and uh, what, what what did people think was going to happen? Well, they if they'd listened to John Mearsheim or, or Noam Chomsky or indeed uh, our comrade Henry Kissinger, they would have known perfectly well what was going to happen. Uh, and they, they in fact were warning about this. The Americans, American security sources, were warning about this at the end of last year. So you know we've got we've got what they wanted, obviously, which is the war. But, I, but you wanted to ask, I think you wanted me to answer a different question than I've just answered, which is something about the history. Yeah, uh, let's just let's just take a few. Let's just take a few of those things and let's get into a, a little bit of more detail. Now you've given us sort of an, an overall synopsis of, of how we've got to where we are. Um, so there was a coup in Maidan um, in 2014. Um, can you go into a bit more detail as to who was behind that coup, some of the actors that were behind that coup and um, who were backing them and who those actors were backing in the Ukraine? Um, we know that um, people like Biden, John McCain, Victoria Nuland uh, were all behind, there behind the scenes during the 2014 uh, coup d'etat um, and um, is it coincidentally that they're back again in power um, and we have those same actors who are who have now been behind the Zelensky um, presidency? Well, let, let, that, again, that's a very complicated question, but let's let's keep on the on the question of Kolobojski, the, the Ukrainian oligarch who I've mentioned already, who funded and who, whose prodigy is Zelensky. Uh, now, Kolomoisky, of course, is an oligarch who owned television channels, but he also owned um, Privet Bank, um, from which he, according to the to FBI investigations, um, defrauded $5 billion worth of, uh, of resources. And he also owned some oil and gas companies, one of which, Burisimo, uh, was uh, uh, employed um, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, uh, and also a number of other at least one other key Democrat advisor was employed by this company. Uh, now that's that's a significant thing. Um, but the the 
the the underlying problem was that the Ukrainian state in the context of Euromaidan was weak. And when the uh, provinces of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk kicked off as a result of the coup, the military would have collapsed. And uh, the, the coup, the people who uh, were seeking for self-determination uh, in, uh, in Donbass um, would have been able to win much more effectively than they did. Uh, and so as a result, what happened was that the, the, um, the oligarchs um, created their own private militia. Uh, Kolomoisky and Dnipro, uh, where he was drafted in as the governor in, the, in that period, created a couple of, uh, of battalions. He also funded the Aida Battalion and the Azov Battalion, the, 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 you know, the, the organizations now known by everybody to be actual Nazis. Uh, and uh, the right sector was also involved. Now, they, these were battalions which, were, which went and fought against the secessionists in the Donbass, but also were engaged in the Maidan protests. The right sector in particular was engaged in the Maidan protests. And, it, and it's, it appears from the trial records that they were involved directly in the shooting of protesters from the Ukraine Hotel. Uh, in Kiev, in the north there, you can see on the map. So the, there's been a, a kind of conglomeration of different interests here, which has allowed the far right to grow and to become established to engage in uh, actual violence and murders, which have gone unpunished, entirely unpunished. And they're now, of course, integrated into the Ukrainian military. And we, and of course, everyone's seen, haven't they, the, the extraordinary number of... Uh, photographs of Ukrainian military personnel uh, sporting black sun, Nazi black sun emblems and uh, the Azov um, emblems and the C4 emblem, the Sikh um, battalion, which is associated with C4. Um, and so everybody can see this. Now, of course, what the, one of the things people on the left say, well, is there's only a few Nazis and, you know, there's Nazis everywhere. And it's just like we have Nazis in the UK. I mean, the Russians have got Nazis. I mean, so it's not really any different. But of course, you know, the Nazis in this country haven't been uh, integrated officially into the British military. They haven't engaged in killings of tens of scores of people, uh, of protesters, never mind the people in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk who have been killed. It said 14,000 over the last eight years. And, and so that's, that is a significant problem. And the reason I say this is a significant problem is because not not just because we now face actual Nazis, but but because of the reason that we say that these are actual Nazis, and that is the history of Ukrainian nationalism, which I can go into if you would like me to. Uh, yes, obviously, um, we we've got a few clips as well um, that we we're going to play. We're go we're going to keep them muted, so David, you can sort of talk over the top and and tell us exactly what's going on there. Um, sure. but we've got a few clips here that you sent us earlier um, to show people um, exactly who the who the Azov Battalion are um, and the far right um, that are um, okay, have so been amalgamated so into the Ukrainian army. Yeah, this is a big story, right? So Ukrainian nationalism goes back a long way. And let's start the story uh, with the, uh, the the Bolshevik Revolution, where with the rise of, uh, of, uh, uh, of the idea of Ukrainian independence and of Ukrainian nationalism. And that, that kind of nationalism was a, a nationalism which was involved, if you look at Zionist sources today, was involved in pogroms against the Jews in the 1920s. Now, I'll maybe come back to that in a minute. What we see here is a, a current day uh, demonstration. Note, this is a demonstration which is being broadcast 
by Radio Free Liberty, i.e. by US government propaganda. So even they, uh, when they broadcast this, saw this as a problem. This is a torch-lit Nazi demonstration uh, in commemoration of Stepan Bandera. Now, Bandera was the leader of the Ukrainian nationalists who, who became the leader uh, after the, the period of the 1920s in the 1930s and 40s, and who uh, led the Ukrainian nationalists into collaboration with the German Nazi party and the German uh, forces. So that they collaborated in, in the Ukraine with the Germans, uh, and, and indeed they carried out massacres for the Germans uh, in the alliance with the Germans of, of, of uh, Romanis. Uh, and of Poles, of uh, people that they regarded as, and the word they would have used at the time was was Untermensch, uh, uh, along with Jews. So there, there is a, a tradition in Ukrainian nationalism which is very Nazi adjacent. Is actual, actually Nazi. They collaborated with the, with, with the Nazis in the nineteen thirties and forties. And just to go to leap back to the nineteen twenties, the the Ukrainian nationalists then were of the far-right variety too. They were involved, as, as even Zionist sources would say, today in pogroms against the Jews. That, that one of their leaders was a guy called Simon Petliura, who, if you look, if you Google his name and, uh, and the word pogrom, you'll come up with um, Times of Israel and Haaretz, um, pieces about how he was involved in pogroms resulting in the deaths of 30 or 50,000 Jews in the 1920s. Now, Petliura was then killed, uh, assassinated in the street in, I think, in Montparnasse, if I'm not mistaken. He's in Montparnasse Cemetery, along with, uh, uh, as some of your uh, viewers will know, along with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, and he was assassinated by a, a Jewish Russian anarchist right? <laughs> who, who's, who, as Tony reminded me before, before we came on air, was found not guilty of the crime. Uh, so this is a guy who, who was a pioneer of the idea of Ukrainian nationalism. But he was also uh, a supporter of Zionism, right? And that sounds very curious, right? But he was a supporter of Zionism in the following sense. Zionism effectively comes from the Ukraine, not only, but it originates in the Ukraine. The forerunners of the Zionist movement set up in 1881, the initial conference in 1884, was a, an organization called Havavi, Havavi Zion, uh, uh, the Lovers of Zion which was set up by a guy called Leon Pinsker. And there's an organization in this country today, recently formed called the Pinsker Center, which indicates the kind of provenance of that organization. And Pinsker set up this, this organization in Odessa, where he was from. And Odessa has been referred to as the gates of Zion. It is, of course, in the, the south uh, west of Ukraine, just and that uh, was also west. the home of Jabotinsky as well, wasn't it, Odessa? I was coming on to that. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> also, the home of Vladimir Jabotinsky, the, the leader of the revisionist Zionists. You know, lionized in Israel, uh, the, the the spiritual inspiration for the Ergun and the Stern Gang, the the uh, the terrorist organizations which were involved in bombings in this country in the UK, as well as, uh, of course, the killings and uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the Nakba, along with the mainstream, um, what became the Israel Defense Forces, the Haganah. Uh, and, uh, and there are, you know, in Israel today, there are thousands of streets and hotels and hospitals, and etc., named after Jabotinsky. Right? And Jabotinsky was mates, not personally, but he was a supporter of Petliura. There's even a, a moment he says, you know, 
let it be, you know, you can put this on my gravestone. This is, here lies the man who made the agreement with Petliura, right? The, the one who is a, in, who is in, who did the pogroms. Now, so that's an interesting thing. Now, if you look at this a little bit, and, and there are, there's stuff on the internet about this, Petliura um, was a Ukrainian nationalist and he believed uh, in a kind of racist sense of what Ukrainian uh, nationality was, and just in the way that you see that with um, in today's uh, far right in Ukraine. And he, but he had, had agreed with Jabotinsky that it was appropriate to set up um, Jewish military formations in the Ukraine, that they would have self-determination in the Ukraine. He came to that position, which is a, a Zionist position, uh, uh, it, with, the, with the single exception that when they fought the Russians, they had to be united. They couldn't be split then. They could do whatever they wanted before, apart from that. But when they fought the Russians, they had to be on the same side. And that, that, so that, that, that sort of uh, alliance there really, really prefigures um, much of what Zionism is about, which is about you know, a, Jew, a Jews only homeland uh, where, where Jews have more rights than everybody else, which, you know, which, doesn't, which has more than a passing similarity to that form of Ukrainian nationalism. Now, not all Zionists were fans of Petliura or indeed of the later far right in Ukrainian politics. Uh, uh, Golda Meir, the Prime Minister uh, of, uh, of, of Israel, uh, who again, who was Ukrainian, and, and five Prime Ministers and Presidents of Israel have been Ukrainian. Two heads of the Israel Defense Forces have been Ukrainian. So there's there's been a division on Ukraine in Zionism to some extent on this, but there's it's really it's really remarkable that that's that sense of what nationality means and self determination means uh, between the Ukrainian nationalists and the Zionists, and that's because they they had this, they were these are similar sets of ideas and they were in, in alliance with each other, and that that's yeah. that's the extraordinary thing. Now since the coup, just to, to whip up to date a bit, since the coup in 2016, they, they there's a school in Odessa. Which was named after Jabotinsky in 2016 as a result of the the kind of rightward drift after the the coup, and that that's an, an indication of the kind of politics that there are on uh, in in among Zionists in the Ukraine. It's not the only kind of politics, and I, I want to I want to come back to that to illustrate to you with one of the other videos that there are some divisions among Zionists on the far right uh, in Ukraine. But, but you know, that, that is, that, there's a strong parallel there between Ukrainian nationalism and Zionism, which is a, a historical thing which goes back, you know, 100 years. OK, David, shall we, shall we bring in Tony Greenstein and we can talk a bit more about the historical stuff and then we'll come back to modern day and we can talk a bit more about the Kolomoisky um, connections uh, today. Hi, Tony. Thanks so Hi. much for, for joining us. Um, this is a subject. Um, the reason why it's sort of come up is that we keep hearing things about, oh, there can't be a far right. There's no such thing as Nazis in the Ukraine. Zelensky's a Jew um, and um, you know I think this is a completely straw man argument and in the great words of that poet Sean Ryder it's twisting my melon man you know I, I can't get my head around this at all and I was hoping that you could bring a bit of clarity um, to uh, to my thoughts and to all the people's thoughts as, as to why there is this um, collaboration of of nazis and um a jewish president 
I mean, I, I, I can't answer individually for Zelensky, and David Miller knows far more about him than me, but historically, I mean, Zionism has never had any objection to anti-Semitism. On the contrary, without anti-Semitism, there is no Zionism. Uh, I mean, David mentioned Leon Pinsker, who, as he says, came from Odessa, uh, and Pinsker wrote a pamphlet called Auto-Emancipation, uh, which you may have heard of, and he, he said, what is Judeophobia? That He was a doctor, so he, he described it as an illness, and he said Judeophobia is a hereditary disease, and having been inherited for 2,000 years, it's incurable. Uh, I mean, if something is incurable, then there's not much point in fighting it, is there? At best, you uh, have a palliative, you, you, you treat the symptoms that, because there is no cure. That was a Zionist attitude to anti-Semitism. Everybody who's non-Jewish carries around this virus in them, and it may be latent, it may be come to the surface, but it's there. And so you have to accept it. It's one of the the natural laws almost of nature that Jews will attract anti-Semitism because they are Jews. They never ask why that may be so. They don't ascribe it to the social, economic, political circumstances. And therefore, if it's inevitable and inherent in every non-Jew, then it's best to try and strike a deal with it. Uh, and Jabotinsky, of course, uh, who reached this agreement, it was actually with Maxim Slavinsky, who was the representative of Petliora. Incidentally, Petliora killed far more. His his uh, Ukrainian nationalists killed far more than thirty to 50,000. Estimates go up to 200,000. Uh, and likewise, Stepan Bandera, the, the, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists was heavily involved in the, the first massive massacre of Jews at Babi Yar in uh, Kiev, uh, when over 33,000, 34,000 were murdered in total, uh, during the whole war, uh, something like 100,000, not just Jews, Romanies, communists, others were massacred in this uh, ravine. Uh, and the OUN played an integral part in it. They, they were enthusiastic. I mean, Ukraine, in many ways, was the reservoir of Jews in Eastern Europe. There was something like 2 million. I mean, its boundaries consistently shifted because Ukraine wasn't independent at all. It was uh, I think part of it was annexed to Poland, part of it was Russia and uh, so on. So it's had a very fragmented history. But Ukrainian nationalism, for a number of reasons, has always been a very rightward-looking uh, movement. Uh, and anti-Semitism has come very naturally to it as a result. So why Zelensky? Well, it's the job of Zionism usually to kosher anti-Semitism, if I can put it like that. Zionism has no real objection to anti-Semitism because it understands anti-Semitism. Indeed, uh, Jacob Klatskin, who was one of the most, uh, the early theoreticians, put it that if we object, object to the rightfulness of anti-Semitism, then we also have to object to the rightfulness of our own nationalism. Uh, because that's how they saw it. Uh, they they understood 
the anti-Semites objection to Jews. The anti-Semites objected to Jews, who they considered to be unwelcome guests in someone else's hotel. And likewise today, they object to uh, guests in their hotel, that is refugees who, who aren't Jewish. So you, you have the absurd situation that uh, non-Jewish, I mean, they welcome Ukrainian Jews because they, they're ready to become settlers in the occupied territories. But they certainly don't want non-Jewish Ukrainians, so they dreamed up this scheme. I, th I think it's been so so notorious, they've dropped it now. But it was a scheme where if you were a refugee coming uh, uh, from Ukraine, you had to pay a 10,000 shekel deposit, which is about £2,500. Uh, and you had to guarantee, basically, your sponsor had to guarantee that you'd only be there for a month. Otherwise, you might forfeit it. So... Uh, and the reason is because in Israel, the major question is a demographic question. Who is born in the middle of the night? Are they Arab? Are they Jewish? Because it's a Jewish state and the Jewish state must have a, a Jewish majority. Uh, and, and so people say, quite rightly, Ayelet Shekhed, who's the interior minister, she makes Pretty Patel look like a, 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 a liberal almost. <laughs> uh, she's quite clear, you're not wanted. Uh, if you're not Jewish, it, it doesn't really matter who you are because you're you're diluting the racial gene pool. And Israel was set up precisely in order to provide as pure a Jewish society as possible. And anyone who lives there who's not Jewish uh, is a second or third class citizen by default. Uh, it, I mean, it's quite clear the Jewish nation state law does that. So it's not surprising. But in Ukraine itself, I mean... Zelensky is acting to kosher the neo-Nazis. Uh, you know, he is the ideal poster boy in a way uh, for for the Azov battalion because he actually legitimizes them. And so he's playing every TV host points when anyone mentions neo-Nazis in the, in Ukraine, they say, "What they've got a Jewish president?" I mean, he is in the ideal position to do that, but. It's true that, I mean, every country, I mean, Russia has it. Putin is certainly not clean. He does, uh, there are right-wing nationalists who control the two breakaway republics. They're not pretty places at all. Let's be quite honest about that. Uh, but in Ukraine, you have a, a situation, not simply that you have Nazi militias or groups, but they're integrated into the very forces of the state. They have access to weapons and arms. And in Odessa, in uh, 2016, uh, I think it was the right sector uh, and the fascists burnt out a trade union centre uh, and literally burnt alive 41 trade unionists. Yep. That's right, uh, yeah. Because the trade unions uh, obviously are the first targets for fascists. So it's not simply a question of, well, everyone's got them. Uh, and Congress in 2000, the end of 2015, withdrew a measure which had been introduced six months earlier by two Democrats, which prevented funds going to neo-Nazi groups. So the Congress was quite aware of what they were doing. It was at the instigation of the Pentagon. So we have the US military, the British military, and the Israeli military as well, all supplying to one degree and another, not only weapons training and fun funding, but working alongside almost the Azov Battalion, the right sector militias, the Adera Battalion, and many other groups of these. So that's why it's quite unique. 
Of course, support for the fascists and the population as a whole is not particularly high. That's absolutely true. Uh, but it's the power of these groups. And, and Zelensky, in essence, is their puppet. I mean, Zelensky, when he went down to, uh, to the Donbass, uh, and met with the Azov and basically told them to keep it quiet. He was he was sent away with a flea in his ear. Mm. Uh, he, he, I mean, there was talk of assassinating him and so on. So I mean, he he bowed on he bowed down to that. I mean, I say David knows much more about Zelensky as an individual, but that's the situation in the, in the Ukraine. I mean, I mean, David mentioned Odessa. I mean, Odessa it, it has. It has a very checkered history. It was a centre of the Jewish Enlightenment, Haskalah, and that's where Zionism really came from because it was after the pogroms in Odessa in 1871 and then with the assassination of Alexander II in 1881, uh, massive pogroms broke out and the Jewish intellectuals jackknifed into Zionism. They despaired of ever winning over. Uh, and that was really, as David says, the birthplace of Zionism, Hobbabay Zion under Leon Pinsker. Uh, and actually, that was the first settlement of Palestine. The Biluim in 1882 went out to establish the first settlements in Palestine. Uh, there were one or two, Petach Tikva in particular. Well, <laughs> it's a Do you want to come back in there? But David, well, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm sure Tony knows much more about this than I do, but I did note just the other day that um, the, this um, sect, Chabad uh, Lubavitch, Lubavitch, um, yes, uh, they um, they created a settlement in in Hebron in 1816, and indeed, I think another settlement in what's now within 48 uh, Israel in 1780 or so. Uh, now that, that wasn't. These weren't Zionist settlements no, they by any means, no. but they were settlements and they became part of the settler movement today, uh, still are part of the settler movement today. I think that's, the, that's an interesting sort of prehistory to the whole question of Zionism because Zionist settlements, as you say, Tony, started when uh, um, in the uh, late 1800s, but in the first uh, uh, Aliyah, as it's called. But there mm. were other settlements there before. The I mean, there may well have been, but I mean, Chabad, I mean, I don't know how strong it was. It's much stronger now, but it wouldn't yeah. have been a Zionist settlement. Uh, the, I no, mean, no, no. I mean, they were until very recently an anti-Zionist um, sect. The Bovich is a strange creature in many ways. It, yeah. <laughs> it, can it, can we come back to, uh, um, to the Chabad um sect um, in a little bit because it, I think it's probably something that's fairly new to people um, yeah. and I think we, we do need to explain that um, who they are and what they believe in um, in a little bit more detail um, so if we just um, if, we, if we go back to, to to David now and we, we can talk a bit more about the Azov Battalion. Um, you sent me a clip here on Ukraine's Azov, Azov uh, Regiment opening boot camps for kids. Mm. Um, Gaz, can you play clip two for us, please? Uh, so, David, do you want to talk us through this? Yeah, I mean, it's probably it's much better to actually watch this and hear the sound than it is to, to listen to me. But um, the, the, this is a, a film which is on, on YouTube. There are a number of other um, films made, these are made by mainstream journalists. I forget which one this is. Is it a BBC one or 
something else. But yeah, there's, there's several different clips of um, these kinds of uh, of youth battalions, really very scary kind of fascist boot camps, right? Um, uh, and if people think that this this is something which is not really happening in Ukraine. Well, it, you know, it it has been, it is, and uh, it's something which we should we should we should take seriously. Yeah, it's it's um, death to enemies, the crane above all. It's um, it's disturbing, isn't it? To um, yeah, I mean, this, this is, this, these are actual in full colour. Right? Yeah. yeah, thanks, Gaz, for that. Um, okay, so um, let's talk a bit, little bit more uh, now about um, uh, Kolomoisky. Um, so you started to tell us about Kolomoisky and he was this um, oligarch, um, made his riches from ill-gotten gains. And Zelensky became a billionaire, didn't he? I mean, how does an actor become a billionaire? Um, let's let's start there and um, you can tell no, us a little okay, bit more so, about so that. Story. I mentioned before this, this show, I mean, he was a comedian and um, they had this show called Servant of the People. I guess people know about this now. Uh, and he he played the role of this teacher who goes on this rant in class about the corruption of the of the political class. And one of his students records it, and it goes viral on the internet, and he becomes elected president. And then, of course, in real life, uh, he stops being a comedian, and he's elected president. Uh, and, and a party is formed within the name of the TV series. And of course, both are funded by. Uh, Kolomoisky, he is on Kolomoisky's channel. Kolomoisky relentlessly promotes uh, Zelensky in the election pre process, including on the election day, seven and a half hours of programming featuring Zelensky in contravention of all the laws uh, on election broadcasting, of course. And so he he makes Zelensky. And Zelensky and his wife and his advisors create these uh, offshore shell companies to launder some of the ill-gotten gains which Kolomoisky has defrauded from somewhere. I don't know which particular ill-gotten gains they were. And they, these are featured in the, in the Pandora Papers. And you can read about this on online, that uh, that these shell companies were put there to receive money from Kolomoisky to Zelensky and his, follow, his, his inner circle. The, the shares or the beneficial interest in some of these companies was then transferred from Zelensky to his closest advisor, who was appointed a presidential advisor when he became president. Uh, and to, and uh, that meant that he didn't have any beneficial interest in these companies. But later documents, as revealed on, by the Pandora Papers, show that um, it was also the case that his wife retained a beneficial interest in the sense that she would be getting the, the, uh, the dividends from the companies, from the special advisor to the president, who still was the beneficial owner of these companies. So, I mean, deeply, deeply, deeply corrupt, right? But that, of course, is the only, is only the beginning. I mean, the, I mentioned before, of course, the the employment of uh, Hunter Biden uh, through the oil company, which uh, uh, Kolomoisky was the controller of. And but his biggest, uh, as as I understand, his biggest um, fraud fraudulent activity was in relation to private bank, which had a, a branch in one of the Baltic republics and uh, and in Cyprus, and they laundered money, um, which had been stolen from private bank. Uh, uh, into those um, branches, and then it was then laundered further afield. And I'll come back to that in a second. Now, as a result of that, private bank collapses and it has to be nationalised. And so the, the the taxpayers in in Ukraine have to, to bail out to the tune of five billion dollars or something like that. 
which of course is you know a little bit problematic and make renders the country even poorer more in, into crisis than it already was now but where, where does all this other money go well um Kolomoisky is um not just a, a an oligarch uh not just engaged in what appears to be massive fraud on uh, on the public um, sector and uh, and the Ukrainian industry, but he's also a philanthropist, of course, and so he gives money to to uh, good causes. And you, you can hear the inverted commas around the word the phrase "good causes," right? Uh, including, of course, um, being the patron of uh, uh, the biggest Chabad center in the world, also apparently, allegedly, the biggest Jewish community center in the world, which is in Dnipro. Which is where he was the governor in 2014 and raised his own battalions, his own militias, which he used to enforce his own business interests as well as to fight the Russians uh, or the Russian separatists. So, where, where does the money go to? Well, one of the places the money goes to, millions and millions of dollars, was it into a whole range of charities and real estate in Florida and New York. Now, the charities were all uh, charities associated with the Chabad movement. Uh, which we'll come back to explain what that is. And then there's two guys in the Chabad movement uh, who are leaders of, the, of that movement in Florida, who have massive mansions in Florida, who are who have been investigated by the FBI and the, the IRS in, in the US. Kolomoisky and his family, all of his family members specifically, are banned from traveling to the US. Uh, and these guys, these other guys, are, are, are specifically named in the Department of Justice cases. There's four separate cases against them for fraud, and, for, and uh, which involves real estate fraud uh, and all sorts of other um, financial um, goings on. So the, 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 there's something really quite significant there, I think, because we see the Chabad movement is part, appears to be part of this money laundering operation. Not just that they were recipients, but they were actually part, according to the Department of Justice, part of this money laundering uh, operation. Now, what is the Chabad movement? Do we need to go into that now in order to Yes, understand? yes, please do, yeah. yeah. So, Hamad Lubavitch uh, is a is a a, a Jewish um, sect, I suppose is the word, which comes from um, Lubavitch. Come, it, it, the name Lubavitch is uh, after the place where it sort of originated, which is a, a small village in Russia, very near the Belarusian border, called Lubavitchy. And I'm sure I pronounced that wrongly. Uh, and uh, the, and the, they have a series of of uh, chief rabbis, the Rebbe, as they called him. Uh, I think seven of them all together, and the last one who died in 1994 was born in Mykolaiv, um, just to the east of Odessa in Ukraine. And they, um, it's a messianic sect which believes in converting people and uh, in going out amongst the non-ultra-Orthodox Jews and bringing Jews into religious observance, but also in converting other people or, or and you know sort of doing ministering to the non-Jews, non right? But it also has a peculiar set of beliefs, which is that they believe that the Jews are the chosen people, that Jews are superior to other people, that non-Jews uh, don't have human souls, uh, and all that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff which is a little bit bizarre, but you think no more of it if it's just a, a religious sect, perhaps. But actually, what we find in the contemporary period is that, that Chabad Lubavitch has become very influential. They have some 10,000 emissaries, or shluchim, as they call them, uh, around the world in 100 countries. They are the dominant force in the Jewish community in Ukraine, and indeed in Russia, it seems, uh, uh, which is a place from which they came. They're very active in the US, 
in the UK and a number of other countries where they where they have a lot of uh, of, of, of emissaries. Um, doing I, this, I know, this and Trump. Trump was surrounded by Chabad Lubavitch um, rabbis, and, uh, and Putin, I think in, uh, indeed his son-in-law was his, yeah. his son-in-law uh, was uh, was gave right. a lot of money to um, Chabad um, causes. So they're kind of an influential sect, and they, as I mentioned before, and Tony kind of grimaced at this. They, they sort of were regarded as being anti-Zionist until about um, sixty-seven or so when the, uh, the Rebbe uh, in charge kind of came to a, an accommodation with Zionism, which meant that they, they're they anti-Zionist in the sense that they don't believe that the state of Israel has the power to take Jews out of the land of Israel. They believe Jews should have the right to be there regardless of the state of Israel making peace deals. And so they're, they're kind of anti-Zionist, Zionist organization kind of, and they make, the Rebbe makes his, his, his peace with Zionism and they, they, they support the IDF and the territories and all that kind of thing. Today, and in fact, they are very they're very central to the radical settler movement. So, uh, I mean, you you can look this up in Haaretz or the Times of Israel, even uh, who who report it that the the Chabad settlers, people in the settlements who are Chabad, are strongly involved in price tag attacks. Uh, that is revenge attacks on Palestinians. The Shin Bet, which is um, Israel's equivalent of MI5, say that almost all revenge attacks. Uh, price tag attacks against Palestinians are done by people from Habad. I mean, extraordinary. So it's not only that they've got this kind of uh, se sense of Jews as, as being superior, but also that they, they, you know, they believe in an ultra settler definition that you can go, you can go around and you can attack Palestinians or Arabs as they would call them because that's what they're due. They're due to be attacked, and they even have they even they even go to the lengths in the, in some of their published work. They, for example, the King's Torah written by two uh, rabbis from one of the uh, Chabad settlements, uh, talks about how it's, it's, it's legitimate to kill children, because Palestinian children, non-Jewish children, because they will grow up to be extremists. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a really, really rather grim set of ideas mm. and practices which they put into place. Very extreme. I could have just finished one, one more thing to say about that. And of course, they've been involved with the, the extremes of the settler movement for some time. Uh, when uh, Rabbi Mir Kahani was in the US, uh, and eventually, of course, he traveled to, to uh, Israel and was assassinated. Uh, when he was in the US, he, he set up the Jewish Defense League, which, as everyone knows, was um, uh, designated by the FBI's terrorist organization. Uh, and he was involved because he was uh, regarded as being uh, an extremist. He, uh, he had a problem with raising money for his movement. And so Habad stepped up and they laundered the money from the States back to Israel, according to uh, a key book written about this period. So there's a very there's a very murky sort of relationship there between the kind of settlement project and um, money laundering for, for those kinds of activities. Tony, um, just uh, briefly, if you want to come back on that, and then we need to, to bring Lizzie in to see if we've had any questions in the chat. Yes, okay. I mean, Chabad Lubavitch reminds me in many ways of the happy, clappy kind of wing of the evangelicals. I wouldn't call America. them happy. I wouldn't call them happy, clappy, but um, well, they, they, they are extremists in my view. Well, in the sense that they minister to non-religious Jews in order to get them to come within their orbit. And they are quite successful in that. As David said, they have a lot of money. They're very influential. 
the third president of Israel was a, a supporter of Lubavitch. They're incredibly influential. Their anti-Zionism was it, it, it actually Israel, which is always represented in, in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, is formally anti-Zionist, but because Israel isn't a halachic, a religious theocratic state, but that doesn't mean they're not equally, if not more so, racist uh, than uh, the average Zionist. I mean, their book, Hatanya, is full of what David said, that, you know, if you're non-Jewish, you don't have a soul, or you have the soul of an animal. Uh, and the, the result of that, of course, is that all, uh, there are two penalties. If you kill a Jew, I mean, that's a capital offence. But if you kill a non-Jew, well, God will deal with you. But it, it's not such so so great a problem. And David mentioned uh, the king's Torah, Torah HaMelech. It was brought out by two rabbis, Yitzhak Shapiro, and I think it was David Elitzor in nine, 2009. Uh, and it was a legal... A religious legal treatise on how you can kill non-Jews legally, uh, and he said, "Well, the way to the way to offend or to wound the wicked king is to kill his children, because that is going to mortally affect him." You know, uh, and you can think about the morality of you kill someone's children in order to get at them, but but that was what was running through. But secular Israelis and the Palestinians, etc. Uh, protested about this uh, and said, you can't just let it go. Uh, but, you know, the state refused to prosecute. And indeed, when when two of the rabbis were called in for questioning, including Dov Lior, who is the chief rabbi in essence of the West Bank, he's a vehement racist, who, who said that uh, a Jewish fingernail is, is worth more than a thousand non-Jews. Uh, there was another Lubavitch rabbi who upped it to a million non-Jewish mm. non lives. So there you go. A yeah. Jewish well, I think we, I think, I think we could go on and on actually with this conversation, uh, particularly yes. about the Noahide laws. But I won't go there just at the moment because that's another subject in itself. Um, thanks, Tony and Dave. For that. Let's see if we've got any comments. Lizzie, do you want to come back to us? Hi, Hi. How's it going in the chat room? Um, well, everybody's full of chat and there are a lot of people watching tonight. I'm sure they're absolutely, they're incensed by by the absolute lies put out by Western media. And they're very interested in hearing about the truth. And uh, it was Adolf Eichmann, I think, um, who said, uh, in order to destroy a nation, it is necessary to destroy, first of all, children. And I've put a uh, I've put a link into the chat to to the video for that, um, where a, a, so say a journalist on Ukraine TV states that he allows himself to quote the words of Adolf Eichmann, and um, that he will kill all the Russian children. So, you know, and it's it's horrific, really. Uh, Sigafredo said, as I mentioned before, in Chile and Argentina, for example, Henry Kissinger supported the far-right death squads in South America, and we know who Henry Kissinger was. Same thing in Ukraine. Was it the same thing in Ukraine? 
What's the question, Lizzie? Was it just a comment you made or was it a question? No, no I don't know. Gaz started it. So. Oh, right. I mean, the extraordinary thing about, about this is that Henry Kissinger is on the other side of this argument. I mean, you know, imagine being so far to the right that Henry Kissinger is your opponent. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, Henry Kissinger agrees with Noam Chomsky, agrees with John, uh, John Mearsheimer. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Right, well, there you go then. At least you knew the answer to that question that I didn't know how to put. Thanks, Gaz. <laughs> um, yeah, not many black children in that Ukrainian summer camp video. Do you want to talk <laughs> a little bit about the uh, racism? Sure. I mean, I mean uh, people have seen this, haven't they? They, they wouldn't let the black people out. <laughs> We'll let white people leave, but we're not going to let black people out. As I, as I understand it, I mean, uh, subject to, to this being empirically verified, I think it's the case, that one of the, the only places where people, civilians, were able to get out uh, through one of the humanitarian corridors, which the Russians proposed setting up, was uh, in the north in Sumy, where, as I understand it, the reason that the Ukrainians had to let them out was because they had a riot. And, and this is largely um, African and other people of colour rioting and saying, no, we're going, and uh, and they they had to let them out. I mean, I, I, in other places, all of these humanitarian corridors appear to have been interrupted in some way. I, 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 I don't want to say any more about that just now, but in that particular case, it seems that, you know, they were they were deliberately selecting people who could leave on the grounds of their race. And of course, let's not forget that they were sending back anyone who is white and male and able-bodied and not letting them leave either. We've seen uh, lots of stories, haven't we, of, um, of people joining the Foreign Legion yeah. uh, to fight for Ukraine, uh, and they have yeah, not lots of, what um, they thought they were going to get. Uh, the, the stories about passports being cut up, people being sent to Kiev with no guns or or, or, or the like. I mean, that that's not really very pleasant for them. It's not really what they thought they were doing. Yeah. No, and I believe I believe the Israelis have sent a, a a unit over there to help out. Is that correct? Well, I mean, the, the, that's what we should talk about as well. The the Tavor rifles, made by a subsidiary of Elbit Systems, or at least they used to be made by a subsidiary of Elbit Systems. I think it's now been sold off to another company. Anyhow, these are Israeli rifles. Uh, uh, and if you if you look at the Azov battalions, uh, the, the Azov regiments um, YouTube, you can see the Azov lot posing about with uh, with Israeli rifles. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian military have been trained by ex-IDF people in their training schools, uh, including in, in, uh, near Dnipro. Uh, and of course, many uh, Israelis have arrived to, to fight uh, on the Ukrainian side, uh, according to, to Israeli press reports. So we've seen a significant involvement of, uh, of the Israelis in the actual conflict. Uh, but I hear also that there's, there is a, a significant influx of far right from across Europe as well. And and even as far as, you know, as Canada and America have been flying in there, um, I think it's yeah. been a, a complete magnet for the far right um, in Ukraine. And um, not, one, one of the things that... Sorry, Lizzie. So not only that, but Israel giving, uh, giving respite to people, Jews, to Jews coming from Ukraine are able to travel to Israel and they're sending jets to pick them up. 
Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so they can use them. That's Tony said. So they can, so they can become settler colonists. They, the World Zionist Organization, I think, or the Jewish Agency said that they had a thousand units, mobile settlement units. I'm not quite sure what that means, but that means that you know that they're going to. These people are welcome with open arms as long as they can contribute to to the number of Jews that there are in Israel, which can outnumber the Palestinians. That's the whole. That's the whole rationale and the whole point of all of this. Always has been the whole point. Of all the immigration from and unlike the Ethiopian Jews, they're high quality. Yes, we've seen the treatment of some of the Ethiopian Jews, haven't we? Have managed to make it to any safe country. Uh, they have any people, any black people, have been terribly treated in, in all the countries that they've reached. <clears throat> We've got also uh, from Julius Marstrand, uh, Myla Kunis, a Ukrainian emigre living in America, and Aston Kucha had dinner with Zelensky on at least one occasion in 2019. They apparently raised 13 million for Zelensky's election campaign. How is money raised in America <clears throat> allowed to be used for an election in Ukraine? He asks. That's going back a bit to 2014, of course, mm. I guess. David, do you have any answer for that? <laughs> I, I don't know what the laws are, no, but uh, I mean, you know, evidently um, it's the case that um, there's a lot of money behind Zelensky um, because he was the West's candidate in the election. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? He, I mean, if you look, look at the maps that are online about the proportion of people who voted for Zelensky, he's a Russian speaker, and people voted for him more in the east, in the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, than in the west, which, uh, given he's the west's candidate, indicates that they didn't really understand what was happening, that he, that he was presented in such a way that, that, that people thought that he was some kind of unity candidate, that he was a Russian speaker, that he would tackle corruption uh, and take on the oligarchs, which, of course, he was being put in by in the, you know, in the first place. So that was a mistake. And One of the... Sorry, Lizzie, can I just get this question in? Um, one, one of the um, straw man arguments that I keep hearing and uh, is on social media is, oh, Putin's worse than Hitler. How would you answer that, Tony? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, well, we've had a number of uh, new Hitlers, haven't we? Started with, think, with Gamal Abdel Nasser and uh, it, it went on. I mean, Yasser Arafat was a new Hitler. Saddam Hussein was a new Hitler. And of course, uh, Putin. It, it really just saves you having to think very much if you keep painting your enemies as the new Hitler. Uh, it, it makes no sense. I mean, Putin isn't a particularly attractive character. I mean, Russia is a kind of gangster capitalist state in many ways. But the war itself is being fought for really uh, defensive uh, purposes because of the encroachment of NATO. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we should... Uh, I mean, yes, I mean, Putin, as I say, is not a progressive in any sense uh, whatsoever. But uh, if you ask who's killed more people, I think that's probably Joe Biden rather than Putin. So uh, if, the if the analogy with Hitler has any meaning, then uh, I suspect it belongs in Washington, not Moscow. Yeah, the um, ju just for for interest, we did get some uh, figures from the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights um, on how many people had been killed in the Donbass region 
and um, they confirm that there was over 14,000 who've already lost their lives in that conflict and around 50 to 70,000 who have had um, non-fatal uh, injuries. Um, so, you know, they have been, there's been a hell of a lot of people, thousands yeah. who've been injured over there in the last eight years. Um, and uh, most of them are actually ethnic Russians, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. Well, the Russians speaking Ukrainian, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anything else, Lizzie? Um, yeah, it was generally just um, how can how can we find out honest information with <clears throat> Facebook allowing Putin death threats or Russian threat death threats against Russian people? regardless of who they are. I mean, once people see that they're allowed to make death threats against Russians, they're not going to stop at Putin, are they? Or, or whoever they don't like. So uh, how are we ever going to get, you know, like every time I see a video, I think, oh, can I put that out? Because it, it's like the, the one, the journalist advocating killing Russian children. I'm like, well, Russia believes that the Ukrainians are Nazis, generally, so they would be quite happy for me to put that out. Um, Zionist Israel has a huge amount of interest in, in this conflict, as well as the UK. How do we information? Sorry, Lizzie, we're losing you a bit now. David, how do we get honest information? Well, I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? Uh, um, this this war is sort of unprecedented. I mean, in my memory, anyhow, I remember walking up the road in Glasgow in 1982 as the order was given to sail for the South Atlantic and thinking they can't be this stupid. Uh, and uh, the Falklands seems like a walk in the park compared to the the atmosphere that there is in this country um, against Putin, the Russophobia, um, that there is the the calling out of anybody who questions anything. I mean, the attack on Stop the War, you know, Stop the War's position on this, you can dispute or you can argue with, but the, the attack on Stop the War is a, is a phenomenon in itself. It's extraordinary that the idea that Stop the War is a, is a pro-Russian front is completely ridiculous, of course. But uh, the, there is no proper analysis of this. And it's, it really is very much like it's, what it reminds me of is what I think it must have been like in the run up to the First World War, where you know all of the left parties in the whole of Europe said, well, working class first, international solidarity, until the moment when uh, they were tested. And most of the left collapsed in that, in that moment in, in Germany, in the UK. And the left, I don't think, has ever really properly recovered from that split. In 1914, where you know national capital was favoured over internationalism, and I think that's something that's happened just now. You know that those people who used to be on the left, you know, people only six months ago who probably would have been against the war in Syria even, and now are saying, you know, but you've got to do something about Putin. And it's extraordinary that the the, the people on the left who I know who, who who regard themselves as revolutionary socialists talking about, but you can't. You can't say that there are Nazis in the Ukraine, or there's only a few Nazis, or it's not important, or 
and you and you sit and you think, well, hang on a minute, you know, what what actually are we seeing here? And they, there's a, a lack of recognition of what's actually being seen here, I think, and that's that's a real a real shame for for the, the possibilities of a humane world, I think. Mm. Well, thanks very much. It's now we've now reached the top of the hour. I want to to thank David and Tony and of course our Lizzie uh, for coming on tonight. And I think you know it, this carries on really well from our conversation that we had with Rod Driver last week, where we were talking about propaganda, and we addressed some of the issues um, that uh, that we have in getting the the correct information and trying to find our way through some of that information and all I can do is echo um, what we discussed last week you know try and listen to as many different sources as you can not the BBC not Channel 4 but some alternative sources there are some very good alternative sources out yes, there John yeah. Mearsheimer um, the great the great sorry David go on have I got a second to make a last comment? I mean, I think yes, look, you can. Yes, yes. Yes, for 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 big picture questions, John Mearsheim and Noam Chomsky, even Henry Kissinger. God, God forbid that I ever said those words. But <laughs> for the specifics, you know, I mean, what, let's remember Snake Island, right, where Ukrainian soldiers were said to have been killed by the Russians or posthumously decorated, or they turned up alive in Moscow, or the mosque the other day in uh, in the south of Ukraine, which was said to have been bombed by the Russians, by the Ukrainian government, the imam says, mate, no bombs here. <laughs> it was half a mile away. There wasn't a bomb here. Uh, and that, that was made up. And we've seen, we've also seen the, the hospital bomb, alleged hospital bombing, which is, uh, I would put in, uh, at the moment, I would say, is disputed. And we've all, we'll, also, we'll see several other atrocities, which will turn out not to be real or not to be, uh, to have ha happened in the way it's said for the propaganda that they're happening. Now, how do you find out about that? You've got to check stuff. You've got to you've got to think up who's saying what, when have they said it, how does this work, what's, how does this story fit together? You've got to go and do research. Now, I, I try and do that. Lots of others will try and do that as well. But pe people can do that themselves. It's these, these things are visible if you look at the alternative sources and you evaluate them and you think about it. But, you know, let be, be sceptical, but check stuff out is what I would say. Absolutely. Great points there, David. Well, thank you everyone for watching. Don't forget to drop us a like, subscribe, hit the notification bell um, and you'll be notified for when we do upload um, next Wednesday at seven o'clock. Um, and um, if you would like to carry on the conversation in the comments, please do drop us a comment. We do, we do read them. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you all for watching. Thank you to our guests. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.